Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. We're talking mostly about Rod McEwen with author Barry Alfonso today. One of these guys I'd seen his records in thrift shops 80 billion times, and I bought a few of them, and they're hit or miss. Some of them are jazzy, and some are classical, and some are kind of syrupy, and some aren't, and... He sees poetry books around in thrift shops. He used to, anyway. Uh, but I didn't know much about him, I guess. And so I read this book. Very interesting guy. What an interesting life, interesting time to have lived a life. Uh, entertainment business certainly exploded, and he had a knack for taking advantage of that. Uh, main thing I didn't know about him is what a... He just had a terrible childhood. And maybe that affected his work throughout his life. I don't know. He, he was a singular guy. His niche of being popular and being a celebrity was very unique. Uh, anyway, interesting book. Interesting author, Barry Alfonso. This is not a particularly long one. Uh, so enjoy uh, as we find out about the life of Rod McEwen here with author Barry Alfonso. Okay, there's Rod McEwen, and as I promised, Barry Alfonso joins us on the telephone. Good morning, and uh, I read this whole book. I, I One of those books I sort of couldn't put down, partly because this is a guy I certainly knew. He was in my, my radar, but I, it turns out I really didn't know uh, that much about him. How much about him did you know before you started the project? I knew what I... Uh had picked up from watching Rod on television growing up because he was always on TV. He was on everything from the Dinosaur Show to Merv Griffin to Hollywood Squares. And from hearing, of course, his most famous songs like Gene and Seasons in the Sun and If You Go Away. But uh, yeah, no, I did not know that much. And uh, I, over the years, I picked up little tidbits. And then when I started researching this book and speaking to people that knew him, and I spoke to over 100 people that knew him, I really learned things and learned about um, myths that weren't true because he spun many myths on top of all the accomplishments that he had. So it was really a process of, of deep education and getting to know someone who I think was kind of a mystery to himself in many ways. One of the interesting parts of the book is you trying to sort out what's real and what isn't, because he was a guy who seemed to enjoy blurring the line between fact and fiction, and especially when it came to his own past, his own autobiography, and his own resume, he just sort of seemed to change at whim, which is makes the job of a biographer a, a lot harder. Also, he was sort of a strange paradox. He was sort of, you know, being an entertainer, you think a person's very open, but he was in some ways very closed and in some ways very open. Let, let me go back one second. If, if people are listening and don't know who Rod McEwen was, how do you very briefly explain what what he did, what he's known for? Well, you know, before the, the term was coined by um, uh, Mr. Howard Stern, Rod McEwen was kind of the king of all media. I mean, he was he was a poet who read poetry on television, which was very unusual. He was a hit songwriter who had uh, number one records and records done by everybody from Frank Sinatra to, uh, to Nirvana and Johnny Cash. He was a movie star briefly. 
He was a radio personality. He was a male prostitute when he needed money and uh, a poor man and a rich man and a very, very complicated person. So I would say that uh, he was his own brand. He was someone who marketed Rod McEwen, the personality, uh, as a brand long before anybody else in uh, show business had the nerve to do it. So that's, that's the best I can do. Yeah. In the back of the book, there's a list of all the recordings that he ever made. And I was, I mean, I knew there were just from being in thrift shops, I knew there were a lot of Rod McEwen records, but there's, there's way more than I thought there were. He was an incredibly prolific guy on every level. Uh, What was his work ethic like? It was obsessive. Apparently from a pretty young age, he constantly worked and uh, fueled himself with innumerable cups of coffee, apparently, uh, but just worked constantly, worked when he was sick, probably sacrificed his relationships to do this. He never stopped working, and you could argue he, mer- he worked too much because he, for instance, spent a lot of money tr- uh, and time trying to launch himself as a classical music composer, and he really wasn't qualified to do that, but uh, he wanted to. He wanted to prove himself in everything, and so he just, he just worked constantly, until, interestingly, and sadly, he crashed when he was around 50. He entered a period of depression that took him years to get out of. But until then, he was just going practically 24-7, really. Yeah, the depression, not not a surprise. If you read if you read the book, and I'll remind you again, the, the book is called uh, A Voice of the Warm, The Life of Rod McHugh. And if you read the book, his childhood is it's horrible. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. And his young adulthood, well, his, his adulthood starts at about age 12 or so, it seems like. But I mean, he had a horrible life growing up. Is that just what scarred him? What, what later, you know, is that what drove him to success? And is that what drove him to depression? In, in reading over what he said, I think that uh, he had a desire to prove himself legitimate because he was born out of wedlock and he was told to his face by his aunt when he was a teenager he was a bastard and he did not know that he was born out of wedlock so you see this term legitimacy pop up in his writings and his interviews all the time he wanted to prove himself i don't think he ever escaped the scars of what he went through but he tried very hard to prove to the world that he was as good as anyone else if not better and i think i think that was the key motivation for people that don't know he his voice and his point of view was this sort of it wasn't exactly guruish because there was a lot of humor behind it I think as well but he was this kind of warm voice encouraging people to love each other in the late 60s and early 70s in a very gentle way and yeah a lot of people really reacted to him and uh, wanted all kinds of products that he produced and books and things that he had his name on. And it uh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's hard to imagine what he would be uh, if he were in his prime these days when marketing is a whole a whole different thing. Uh, one of the things, I think you say this, you were drawn to him uh, because people found him, him objectionable. Uh, why yeah. did people find him objectionable? I think that some people's standards of what is... Uh intelligent and sophisticated and what isn't are kind of fragile. Uh, but, but even more than that, he became really popular in 1967-68 when a lot of people that uh, were on the other side of 30 uh, thought that cultural standards were under attack. And it's interesting that some of the critics, specifically a man named Carl Shapiro, who hated uh, McEwen, thought what he did was less than trash, also disliked the Beat Generation writers 
who disliked Bob Dylan, who liked, disliked the Beatles, and believe it or not, they lumped them all together. He called the, the collective person, that he, was, he was fighting against Dylan Magoon, which was McEwen and, and Dylan put together. So I think that some people felt that his standards, because he was so accessible, because he was the most understood poet in America, as Dick Cavett called him, that this was somehow an attack on Western civilization. I think that's really what the core of it was. He wrote, I don't know, thousands of songs, I want to say, but I, I never, I, maybe I missed it, but did he, what instrument did he write on? Did he play an instrument? That's very mysterious. I do know that he probably would hum or plunk out a tune that an arranger would turn into a whole symphony. What his capability was on an instrument, I think, was very minimal, but this was something that was very hard to pin down. I, I think a lot of it was he could sing, and he was very charming, and he could get people to do things for him. He made a ton of money. It's funny, because he went from being so, so poor to being so, so rich. It seems like he did not handle the money very well, lived sort of a lavish lifestyle. Did research provide a window into what he did with uh, his money at his richest time? I think he kept plowing it back into new businesses. He, he uh, you know, as they say, he tried to launch himself as a classical music composer. He put out calendars. He uh, tried to run a travel service for his fans. He tried to put out a clothing line. And he did indulge in, in he was kind of a shop, shopaholic. He, he loved to travel. But uh, he did plow a lot of his money back into his career, a lot of which uh, did not pan out so well. So at the, he died in 2015, leaving tons and tons of tapes and old stuff, you know, those calendars and books and things like that. What happened to all that stuff? It's really kind of a tragedy. Uh, to really make a long story short, his partner of 50 years really wanted to move on and did not want to be burdened by the, the legacy of Rod McEwen and doing something with it. So he tried to destroy all of it, basically. Anything that couldn't be auctioned off easily, uh, he wanted to put in the dumpster. And fortunately, the master tapes of uh, a lot, if not most of Rod's recordings were saved. But Basically, his partner just wanted to be done with it. So an awful lot of material that would have been useful to a scholar about Rod's life uh, is, is now gone. Fortunately, I found other sources for his papers, but that was, uh, that was the fate of it. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned his partner. This, this is a guy who was briefly, it seems like, his romantic partner, but his business partner, his friend, he, I think he calls him his brother for you know most of their relationship together. But again, it's sort of hard to know. He was a guy who sort of really pushed back on labels about sexuality and uh, who you love. It, he sort of said you should just love anybody. But he was sort of, in some ways, important to moving the cause of having open sexuality in in society, you know, in people's face, I guess. I mean, is that right? Yes, it is, in a sort of an unflamboyant way. I think that uh, millions of people that weren't out in the streets protesting or flaunting their right to be different took a lot of comfort and strength from him. I mean, the, the, the saying that he was most proud of was, it's not who you love or how you love, but that you love. And in that quiet way, he changed people's minds. He reaffirmed how they wanted to live their lives. I've described Rod at times as an eroticized Mr. Rogers, <laughs> and I think he was that. He reached that sort of audience 
with a message that included sex in the game. Now, now he also said that uh, sex to him sometimes was, is less important than brushing his teeth. He didn't think about it all the time. He didn't want it to define him. That's important to note. And that's why he never called himself gay or straight or bi. But he wanted to give people the freedom to be whoever they wanted to, to, to put it in the most simple way. Yeah, that's very interesting because a lot of a lot of his recordings do have a erotic undertone, but it is in a very Mister Rogers way. So it's very interesting. This guy had a terrible childhood. He must have been filled with some sort—I don't know—filled with, but he must have had a, a deep vein of anger. I don't know, resentment or or just why me? Just those things that people who go through terrible experiences, yet he lived this, he professed to live this life all about love. I mean, at the end of the day, do you buy that? Do you think he really felt that in his heart? That's interesting you expressed that. There, there is not much of an example of him uh, lashing out. He said at times that, I mean, when, remember when he was um, drafted into the army, he said he would not complain about having to do KP duty or to march around. I think he had a certain stoical quality about that. I would tell you that almost everyone I interviewed had fond memories of Rod, and the ones that did not felt that he was a bit of a sharp player as a businessman and maybe uh, cut corners as a businessman. But in terms of being angry, in terms of being nasty, there's very few stories about that. And Mm -hmm. uh, that must testify to his, his strength and his discipline, that he just didn't allow himself to do that. But but was he inside more turbulent than he showed? I think so. I think that he, he suffered, and I think that he felt that uh, uh, what he went through as a child is something that he never could completely overcome, but he didn't channel it into overt acts of, of rage and hostility, and it doesn't come up in his writing very much either. Now, maybe he internalized it so deeply that it really ate away at him, and that's that's possible, but you don't see the signs of it externally. Hmm. Yeah, how... What a, in any case, he is a super, super interesting guy. And I, how long did it take you to put the whole book together? About three and a half years. And no. I certainly could have gone longer, uh, but uh, that's that's the, the span of time. Are there mysteries you you got you uh, you just couldn't crack? Yes, yes, there are. There are things that are just unknowable, like whether he really did sing for John F. Kennedy, whether he actually made movies in Japan. Um, there, there's so many of them. Whether he published a book under someone else's name to prove <laughs> that the critics that were out to get him yeah, were out to books, get anybody with a Rod McEwen book. Yeah. Sorry? Three books, I believe, he says he wrote, right? That... Yes. Yeah, these, <laughs> these things could not be verified, and I suspect, I suspect most of them were, were fabulations, but I can tell you uh, that he believed some of them himself. Uh, believe things about himself that he had done that were not true. So that, that kind of thing drives a biographer crazy, I think. Sure. Did he ever seek a professional mental health treatment? I don't believe so. Um, there was a report that he was in AA for a time in the, the 80s, but I couldn't verify that. But uh, no, again, you know, he took Prozac and he toughed it out. That was the way he liked to do things. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, the book is called A Voice of the Warm, The Life of Rod McCune, and Barry Alfonso has been our guest. Thanks so much. I, like I said, I really enjoyed the book, and it was kind of the perfect balance of a guy I, you know, I had a just a very brief knowledge of, and you you completely filled out the picture. And as always, these sort of stories, just uh, the time he was born and going into the war and the explosion of, you know, of the youth culture and 
then how his life kind of goes downhill after the 70s. It kind of is just a history lesson just in general, and I sort of uh, really enjoyed it. So thanks very much. Thank you so much. There was a fire eater with the sores on his mouth who came to the coexistence bagel shop and did his act for coffee and toast. And the colored boy trying to get the blonde girl to go home with him said, Hell, this girl breathes fire. And there was a fight because the fire eater pressed close and stepped on the girl's foot. And the waiter went to the phone and called Herb Kane. And when the fight was over, the girl agreed to go home. And the colored boy winked at the fire eater who went along too. You see... There is poetry in everything, other than snow falling and sunsets in a camera and little girls playing jacks and clumsy cattle being playful. I have this friend named Phyllis who likes truck drivers and garage mechanics. She had a black eye when I saw her yesterday, but she said it was worth it. That's all right, baby, swing. Some things are better than sleeping pills. I try to be a good beatnik, but it's hard. I mean, like, I don't dig turtleneck sweaters, I can't grow a beard, and I catch cold in sandals. But I got a pad with a torn Picasso poster on the wall, and a dirty red tablecloth, and an autographed picture of Diane Varsi, and all the Lenny Bruce records. I even bought a book on Zen. And if you come home with me, I'll give you a cheese sandwich and wine in a cracked porcelain cup. My white bucks gave me away. Well, you see, like, Gemini cats are like twins. Like, I mean, you know, like dual personalities. And, uh, like, they can't make up their minds whether they like Beethoven or Jerry Mulligan, for instance. And, like, well, you know, like, well, I was mixed up with this Gemini cat once who didn't, I mean, she didn't like to be liked. Like. There's a lot of new words a-going around As swinging and groovy as a serpent sound So start with your words, begin with the new That's a 38 Cadillac Movie That's groovy when you're on the go Sicker That's a funny kind of TV show I say great That's a wave that's bigger than big Carpet That's the father of a beetle wig Vortex That's a group that just don't swing And swoons are the tunes that the Beach Boys sing There's a lot of new words of as a serpent sound So it's hard with the old words In with the new If you listen to me, baby Gonna teach them to you Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, here are some more words now Fang That's a Dan in a new Mustang Tricks Are the chicks in a surfer gang Dreer That's gear when your teacher feels low 
That's a broom that just didn't grow. I say smile. That's a smile with a sneer on top. Ooh. That's dad when he blows his top. Mel. That's a mall that it looks like soup. Cookies, cotton cookies is a Girl Scout troop. There's a lot of new words are going around. As swinging and groovy as a surfing sound. So it's out with the old words, in with the new. If you listen to me, baby, gonna teach it to you. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, listen for the new words now. Fuzzle. That's a beard on a surfer's chin. Smosh. That's a monster with a match left in. Blonde. That's a girl type 007. Lip. That's the other place they don't call heaven. I say wicked. That's a ticket that the old man pays. Some people like to rock, some people like to roll, but me, I like to sit around to satisfy my soul. I like my women short, I like my women tall, and that's about the only thing I really dig yeah, at all. Well, man, well, I belong to the B generation. I don't let anything trouble my mind. I belong to the B generation, and everything's going just fine. Woodsville, yeah. Some people say I'm lazy, and my life's a wreck. But that stuff doesn't faze me, I get unemployment checks. I run around in sandals, I never ever shave. And that's the way I wanna be when someone digs my grave. Put a beat in the White House. I belong to the B generation, yeah. I don't let anything trouble my mind. Sneaky feet, yeah. I belong to the B generation, and everything's going just fine. Back on the road. I once knew a man who worked from nine to five. Just to pay his monthly bills was why he stayed alive. So keep your country cottage, your house and lawn so green. I just want a one-room pad where I can make the scene. So out it's in. I belong to the B generation. I don't let anything trouble my mind. I belong to the B generation. And everything's going just fine. Oh, oh man, poetry and jazz there. I belong to the B generation. Yeah. I don't let anything that's my trouble story. my mind. Hey, hey let's I flip the coffee to house, the yeah. B generation. Now we've made this thing long You stand among the awkward hollyhocks. Big eyes. Love's machinery not yet working. The dandelions trampled. The tall grass twisting in the wind. The lizard sulking in the sun. You stand there like some new flower. Beautiful. Not yet ready to be picked. This summer belongs to the people of the world who want each other. The lonely have no right to share the summer sun. 
see the dog? He doesn't move. Avoid her. Never mind. What we've done is beautiful for gods and animals to see, for us to stand aside in awe and look ourselves up and down. When you let go to me, it detaches from me all the debts I've paid that day. Smiles to secretaries mean, dividends to competition in my work, courtesy to those who break me down. Good morning to the elevator man. Your thighs make over all the scales. And so I hurry home to you. To use your belly as a cape. To cover up the day.